Have you ever been on Amazon and had the perfect book recommended to you? Or have you ever been on Pandora or Spotify and had the perfect song turn on even though you'd never heard it before? There's an application of artificial intelligence called recommendation engines, and it's an interesting little dynamic that's developing a lot of commercial applications, some of which day-to-day -day folks like yourself and myself might be rather familiar with, and others are sort of under the radar but still in the works. Uh, Rafer Gabriel is, uh, has been in the business of artificial intelligence for quite some time, starting off in the finance domain, now with his company called Delve, D-E-L-V-V, where he's working on commercial applications of uh, uh, recommendation engines. In this particular episode, we talk about how this technology works, how this technology comes to learn from reviews, from ratings, from interaction, uh, what songs, what products are best for what people and at what times. It's a relatively complicated process, but Rafer does a good job of being able to break it down into layman's terms, as well as giving us some of his perspective on how recommendation engines might be enhanced and applied into the future and sort of make commercial uh, technologies even more customized person to person. So quite an interesting episode for those of you in the startup world or any of you who've marveled at what Amazon and some of these other referral engines actually do. So I hope you'll enjoy this one. We'll hop right in. So, Rafer, I know that we're going to be talking a good deal about a little bit of the, the technology behind what might be called discovery engines and this whole process of applying machine learning um, sure. to discovering and accessing content. I know that at your company, Delve, you folks are working on doing just that with uh, you know articles and other kinds of media. What other applications out there in the world are discovery engines findable? Everybody knows about Amazon, but I think few people know of other applications, and unfortunately, I'm in that camp. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, well, I think content discovery is a pretty big application domain these days. I think another example that a lot of people relate to pretty quickly is Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think almost everyone has, if they aren't a Netflix, Netflix subscriber themselves, they've certainly used Netflix, watched videos on Netflix and seen how Netflix recommends other videos to them. So, you know, th that's another good content discovery and recommendation system example that I think speaks to people. And, and Spotify and Pandora uh, on the music side yeah. certainly speak to people as well. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that, that some of these slightly more constrained domains have shown a lot of success uh, at, at applying recommendation system techniques towards content discovery. And... Um, and some of the more unbounded domains like web content have certainly, I think, struggled a little bit more to make good use of the technology that's out there, the, the algorithms and models that are out there, just because there is so much unbounded information that, that it is hard to represent well and to match well with, uh, with the other kinds of things people are consuming. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And, and so Spotify is a familiar example. Netflix yeah. as well. I, I haven't I, you know, I don't know anyone that works there and, and I don't believe we've ever interviewed anyone who has even worked there in the past, but I, I've heard that, you know, in any given movie, if they're, they're, you know, tracking when the pauses are, when people stop watching and, and are able to sort of factor all of that in, in maybe some way, shape or form to future recommendations, you know, not just did they engage with movie X, but in yeah. what way did they engage? Did they watch it twice? Did they pause halfway through and watch the rest of it a month later. 
and and it's all that's all in the domain of movies. We're talking about well, primarily, I guess Netflix has probably some other kinds of content, but generally movies, documentaries, um, you know, music. Again, a constrained domain. If we watch you interact with enough music, we can figure it out. It's like if we watch you play tennis, it's tough to make too many golf recommendations. And I guess when you're talking about general web content, we're working with so many different dispersed uh, types of material that people could be handling that it's tough to really know what's the next thing. Now, it seems like Amazon might be in some way, Rafer, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, an example of an almost unbounded kind of category. I guess that if they see your book activity, they'll recommend you books. Do they just do a bunch of different segments? Because it, it, I don't know if they can take books and then recommend you, you know, golf equipment later on or whatever the case may be. It seems like they're, they're as close to unbounded as I know of. Yeah, I mean, most of the collaborative filtering algorithms that are built around some kind of matrix factorization technique, and they definitely tend to work better if you found the domain in some in some sense um you know it's really about how many how many different products are you trying to compare at one time and and build a a matrix representation of user preferences around and how many what kinds of inferences are you trying to make off of that you're you're right that amazon through in their recommender systems they, they actually do a whole bunch of different things these days they do both you know item-to-item collaborative filtering within product categories, but also in a broader, less bounded sense. And I think they've made changes over the last year or two years in in their user interface to reflect that too. They they probably feature more different types of, you know, recommender system recommendations in one kind of consumer interface than I've seen anyone else do. Yeah. Um, So you'll, yeah, you will see both, you know, other users who bought this product like these products, we'll see, you know, um, people who uh, who use this also use this. I mean, they have so many different headings for recommendations now in different parts of their user interface. Can give you an idea of the different types of collaborative filtering recommendation models that they are using. But yeah. there's definitely a lot of it. They definitely have the. Uh... They they have the funds to put into R and D and and they pref- and, and they have the data too. I mean, oh, oh yeah yeah that's, they have the data. Really what is it like eighty purchases a second on Amazon now yeah, or something like that? I mean, you may only have small sets of data for any given user. The, the whole key to coming up with good results from any of these algorithms is more about um, what is the what's the volume of data that you're able to feed into a, an algorithm initially for sort of that cold start scenario with a new user coming in or a new product coming in. Yeah. So, you know, as you, once you get to a certain critical mass of data about a user's preferences, it definitely becomes a lot easier to recommend good stuff for them. That's similar to things you've already consumed in the past, but you do need, you know, in order to handle those, those, you know, fresh users coming into a new system, you know, you need to have some way of modeling, you know, what their interests might be based on that first click that you're able to extract out of them. Yeah, yeah, wild. Yeah, the the just initial tiny traction, but you need so much training material before then to 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 you be able to take those cues, right? So, yeah, and and definitely. is that is that kind of why you know TensorFlow is out there for free, for example? Um, is this is this part of why other folks sort of open up these? You know, IBM's recently done something similar with with one of their uh, machine learning applications yeah. is it just so that we can 
pipe more financial info, pipe more research info through these systems and just, just, uh, you know, blend, blend that algorithm to a little bit of a finer extent. Well, I, I think that that intersection point between data warehousing and, um, and, you know, machine learning problems is actually a pretty critical intersection point because machine learning doesn't do much without data. So you definitely need good systems to collect the data, good systems to manage the flow of data, and then good systems to apply models that you built in sort of test scale to that data in production. I actually do think that's um, probably a, one of the strengths of that TensorFlow product that Google just released is, is really... A, you know the focus on on data flow modeling over you know I mean it certainly has some some fine capabilities in terms of of you know optimization and gradient descent modeling and stuff but but th those are things that you can get from lots of different open source and commercial packages out there you know I mean it's been compared quite a bit to Theano which is a, a popular Python library for machine learning and they certainly have quite a bit of similarity but but I don't think that that same focus on where is the data flowing from, how are we collecting the data, and then how are we periodically retraining a system around that data uh, is is reflected as strongly in, in any of those other products out there. And ultimately, that's that's the key to building real systems in the real world that work well uh, around recommendation systems, collaborative filtering, filtering and, and an awful lot of other machine learning algorithms. Got it. And before we, we get into a little bit of the technologies there, I think you mentioned something about a, um, a matrix, uh, some sort of a, some sort of a, um, a very fancy sounding term that I'd, I'd love that I'd love to, I'd love to understand the definition of and just educate myself a bit. And yeah. I'm sure the audience would dig too. Before, before I do, you know, we just mentioned some pretty big companies, you know, Pandora, uh, Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, of course, you know, hundred billion bucks, uh, you know, they're doing it right. Um, are, are there other interesting restricted domain applications of the suggestion or recommendation or discovery engines that maybe most folks don't know about? I'm thinking out loud, you know, are there big factories that are pulling in all different kinds of inventory for machinery parts and there's machines that are able to uh, not just predict future consumption of existing parts, but maybe have an understanding of the kinds of parts that they should be stocking. If if they're using too many of these two things together, there's this part that kind of does both. Uh, same thing in medical, you know, maybe based on what kind of uh, equipment they're using and what they might need to restock. I'm trying to think to myself, what might be the other applications? Do you know of any other interesting niche ones other than the big companies? Sure. I mean, I... I We'll probably think of some other things. I mean, it, it depends on whether we're if we're talking narrowly about you know recommendation systems yes. and collaborative filtering systems, which are kind of a, a set of, of things usually grouped together. I, I um I, I certainly think I I know that there are systems like that in use in medical applications. Um, I know that there are systems like that in use in manufacturing in certain cases. I mean. Really, anything that that you can transform into a model of relationships between items and item preferences uh, can can map directly onto one of those kinds of techniques. So, um, you know, it, it it you know you could certainly model preferences in the healthcare world, uh, for example, 
through the use of recommendation systems. That so, would work quite well, I think. It, um, and, you know, that could be treatment preferences by different doctors and relating one kind of decision to other sets of decisions. And it seems like there's sort of a potentially a lot of ripe, ripe opportunity there um, in, in these various different domains. I imagine the, the more systems we have in place to collect and seek out the patterns in, in that data, which, which I, I don't think is tapped to any extent, especially in maybe some of those stodgier industries. Sounds like that's, yeah. that's where often the entrepreneurs might step in. Um, so with that being yeah. said, I'm interested in, in what the te- what are the technologies that have permitted this to come about when we're looking to, uh, recommend, um, yeah. you know, movies, music, content, whatever the case may be. What is, what is at work? What, what are the machines up to here and how are we training them um, to be able to permit that kind of functionality? What are the basics? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately I think, you know, the things that had to happen in, in order for that to, to, that the technology around recommendation systems to develop was really having large amounts of cheap memory to work with. Huh. You have to fit uh, an awful lot of, of, you know, matrix data in memory. And, and it's a matrix because you're looking at relationships between items and other items. And um, obviously the problems that kind of get interesting are ones where you have lots and lots of different items. So, you know, you might have, if you're looking at a million different products in an e-commerce system, then you need to be able to store one million by one million matrices um, of of different item correlation data, yep. and and then you know you also need to store item user data uh, in in potentially large blocks as well. So all of the the fitting and the data storage does need quite a bit of memory to work with. So that was probably one of those you know just. Cheap and plentiful memory has certainly been very helpful in the development of these things at commercial scale. Got it. Uh, in terms of the underlying technology and algorithms and understanding of how they fit together, I, I actually think Netflix and their Netflix, Netflix Prize have done more to kind of encourage this recommendation system development as a, as a field in and of itself than anything else. Wow, what is that? Um, I've never heard of the Netflix Prize. Okay, cool. So the Netflix prize, and I don't even think they're doing it anymore, but uh, Netflix sponsored a prize starting, I think, around uh, perhaps 2007, 2008, maybe, um, to improve the kinds of collaborative filtering uh, that you can do with movie data. And they released some chunks of, of their own user data preference preferences um, in the form of some some files that you could actually load into whatever algorithms you wanted to play around with. And they offered, I think at one point, a million dollar grand prize to the team that was coming up with the best uh, algorithms for predicting user ratings of movies. Wow. And, um, you know, back in, I think, 2009, there was actually, there was a team that, that won that first million dollar prize by beating their Netflix's own algorithms by quite a few percentage points. So, you know, that, that the, the, a lot of that work that came out of those Netflix prize competitions really spurred the, the thought that I think you could use recommendation systems for a whole bunch of different problem domains and that there was a lot, of, a lot to be gained by applying these matrix-based collaborative filtering algorithms to 
other kinds of domains, e-commerce domains, um, you know, uh, medical music, um, you know, and, and web content certainly as well. So yeah, there, I think that that was a big, a big part of the, the spurring of recommendation systems into a more commercially viable platform. Interesting. It's, you know, I, I, I wonder if maybe there's other companies, you know, I mean, Amazon could certainly use something along those lines. Maybe they're more tentative about releasing samples of, of data than, data. than Netflix yeah. is, but that's probably true. Yeah, that's curious. Um, so you know, when you mentioned this matrix base, if you were to put this in layman's terms, if we want to understand to some degree uh, this notion of uh, applying these these th this kind of matrix uh, approach, um, sure. what what is what does that you know boil down to when you have to describe it to someone who doesn't have a formal yeah. background? Absolutely. So I mean, really, what it comes down to is storing the relationships between certain preferences. So, you know, if, if a user watched a certain movie and we know that they liked it because they gave it a high rating, or, or we just infer that they liked it because, let's say, they watched the whole thing through or maybe they watched it twice, um, there might be several different ways in which we measure how much they liked a particular piece of content or yeah. movie. Um, we can build a... A matrix that stores the relationships between that particular preference and other preferences. So, uh, you know, we might know from some other user that people who watched Mystery Science Theater 3000 also happened to really like watching The Simpsons. Um, yeah. And that would give us a piece of data that we could trigger a recommendation on to a user who watched Mystery Science Theater 3000. So that, that would be an example of a sort of direct collaborative filtering system that looked directly at those relationships between one movie, say, and another movie. Um, those kinds of systems are, in the pure form, are a little limited. In practice, um, there are a lot of other techniques used to supplement that, where you, know, you need some kinds of intermediate models, because your data in a, in a big collaborative filtering system like that is we, we would say very sparse so you know you might have one user who watched mystery science theater 3000 and the simpsons and you might have another user who watched the simpsons and uh you know the matrix or something yeah but, yeah you know finding users who watched large enough subsets of movies to really understand the relationships between the preferences becomes quite difficult yeah, you, you so, well, that's why you need to limited domains, I guess, like you talked about, right? Because too many possibilities yeah. is too much to have to, to, there's no recommendations to be made if it's too sparse. Right. I mean, so or the recommendations become very Vacant. inaccurate yeah, at yeah, that yeah. point. Yeah. So that, that's why there are a lot of other techniques that are, that are used to supplement that approach, things that we are generally called dimensionality reduction. So we take a really, really big matrix if we have a million movies that we're looking at and maybe instead we think about just the different topics or categories of movies so we could reduce this problem from a problem of a million movies related to a million other movies to just looking at relationships between high-level categories of oh. movies or perhaps relationships between movies made by particular directors or movies featuring certain actors. So we might take something that's a million by a million and, and convert it down into a more manageable problem looking at just the relationships between preferences among, you know, 
the thousand most popular Hollywood directors or something like that. Yeah. And, and then it's much easier to construct the relative preferences that go into that matrix and then to also faster and easier to apply that matrix to uh, known data about a particular user to infer what other things they might be interested in. Uh, okay. So that's that's actually a big part of the kinds of techniques that were developed in that Netflix prize competition. It was going from those purely item-based recommenders to what are often referred to as hybrid or content-based filtering models that um, you know enable you to take take advantage of some kind of knowledge of what the type of information is to build these you know simpler structures to describe the data in a particular domain so that you can make inferences on kind of data that looks a little more dense without having to collect you know years and years of, of millions of people's usage just to yeah. get enough to to train a model on got it okay okay that that makes a lot of sense and now of course that involves at least in its initial stages a good deal of methodical and strategic human thinking what are the what are the abstract buckets in which we yeah. will put these movies and how can we tag and and reference them in, in appropriate ways and and that that um sounds like a lot of experimentation there really would be spawned in in the the creative impetus of the humans in charge uh for lack of better terms yeah definitely um, i mean the the better i think the better structured your data is to begin with probably the easier it is to apply these sorts of systems. Yeah, yeah, and, and the more limited, of course, as, as you had mentioned, which isn't always possible when you have an inventory like, you know, uh, Spotify or Netflix or whatever. Of course, they have the volume and the data now, but I, it's interesting to see how the more limited data can still be useful and fruitful. As my last point, Rayford, and I'm, I'm curious to your thoughts here, you know, you're developing applications in this space, you're looking at and trying to learn from uh, past and present companies in this space. In the coming five or 10 years, what might the development of recommendation engines permit? How might the world look different? How might we interact with our technologies differently, whether it's consuming the news, using applications? Um, what does this look like as, as this recommendation trend um, begins to kind of permeate technology? Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly think, you know, we've seen... Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's good or bad, but we've seen more usage of this recently uh, with, you know, content-based advertising, certainly. I mean, it's hard to find a, uh, a news website out there that doesn't, uh, that doesn't feature sponsored results from Outbrain or Tabula or one of these other uh, sponsored content uh, companies or retargeting banners, right? Any of that and stuff. Retargeting banners, yeah, that that's absolutely true. Retargeting is another one of these these uh, you know internet advertising technologies that that seems to be eating up the world right now. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know if I don't know if retargeting directly connects up to collaborative filtering. It may not. Yeah, it's more or less like very much just tracking based, and and you know it's more like they just. They just zero in on you based on that that cookie they managed to sneak into your browser. Yeah. They know you. They know you searched for this thing. They know you clicked on a website, and boy, they're just going to keep advertising yep, yep. until you until you finally give in and click on something. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but definitely, I think the, the content the content marketing companies are, are are using a lot of collaborative filtering algorithms now. Um, they are you know they have more limited domains of content they're drawing from, but they are also using 
cookie tracking and stuff to sort of see what kinds of websites you visited and match them up in broad strokes to uh, to articles that they think might be interesting to you. Um, the, the flip side of that is I think certain key phrases like we found some other things you might be interested in or articles we found for you have now started to become associated pretty closely with advertising and sponsored content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of these, these phrases that might actually mean something real in that world of recommendation systems and collaborative filtering have, have come to be almost like they're, they're becoming catchphrases for, hey, here's some stuff that someone paid to stick in front of your face. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, which, I mean, that I, that leaves a kind of bitter taste in my mouth. It's sort of like, if you know. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, you, you'd like you'd like you'd like it to be. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's respected or used for what it is, but if it, if it yeah. becomes cliche and maybe misleading, now where does that leave recommendation? It in, in a legitimate sense. Exactly. exactly. I think that, that that's sort of the I would describe that as the that's almost like the gray market of recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> the, the part that we don't really like to talk about because it's being used a lot now in in advertising tech, and uh, you know it it. it, it it does create a certain impression in people's minds too, that anytime somebody's trying to recommend something to them, it's just because it was paid for rather than that someone's actually looking organically at the kinds of things that they've been interested in and, and trying to get them more of the things that they might be into. Yeah. So I do think that's a bit of a, a shame, but you know, looking at, at what the, where the world is going, I, you know, there's obviously a lot of development going on in that ad tech space. Yeah, yeah. And they're certainly taking advantage of, of collaborative filtering and recommendation system technology. Um, and do, do you think just as a sort of wrap up topic here, do, do you think as um, you know, recommendation engines begin to uh, ramp up and we find them in, in other limited spaces and maybe eventually in other broader spaces as those kind of matrix approaches maybe get scaled out into other domains effectively, um, do you think that uh, any any sort of source of media or any kind of overt search could be augmented by this? And and what might that sort of mean mean or imply? I mean, if if if, if generally, I, I remember on well on, on your website it says something like like search less, no more. And I think oh, yeah. and I think uh, that's the point. I think that that's the point in terms of utility. Is it possible that that really would bleed its way into reality in the next five or 10 years where really we would be genuinely coming across what our intention is aiming at even when we don't know the terms to search for? Where else might be that more um, where else might that be more plentiful in our technology engagements and, and usership and whatever else? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, a, a lot of efforts in that direction. I think, you know, Google at least at, at certain points in time has presented their Google Now platform as an effort to really push predictive analytics ahead of the search problem um, to to really be be there with your search results before you even get to type them into a search engine effectively. Yeah, uh, that's not all. Google now is. It's a lot of other stuff too that's been moshed together into kind of a, a product name. But um, but but that is certainly one of the intentions behind that Google Now platform. And I know that, that they're certainly quite hot at Google in in terms of you know 
getting out ahead of people's searches and, and, you know, mixing in, um, kind of predictive analytics and recommendation driven information into the search mix. So I think that that's absolutely a, an area that it's almost like the division of pre-crime here. We're going to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. division of pre-search. We're going to get you the things that you were about to search for before you searched for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, there will be a lot more going on at that intersection between the search and recommendation space um, over the next couple of years, too. It's it's sort of inevitable. Um, you know, if you can look ahead to what someone's going to be searching for next, then you can certainly help refine and tune in on the right information with, with less effort. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, so it sounds like some some potential takeaways in terms of insights. Marketing certainly won't slow down, and we, we can expect uh, that domain of generating those clicks uh, to, to be um, ahead of this curve, whether it be in the white hat sense or in the gray hat sense, as you had aptly put it. Um, and similarly, um, it, it seems as though in any of these more constrained domains, uh, there is ample opportunity so long as there's ample data to do much of what Netflix has done, and hopefully we'll see that um, to to the fruitful benefit of all kinds of other industries. So it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out. Rafer, I appreciate you sharing your insights and being with us here on Tech Emergence today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to join you. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.